Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. I actually thought that I was going to have to go back to Netflix and see what was released over the last couple of weeks or months because this is a holiday weekend and only two brand new films came out in theaters and a handful of films came out on streaming platforms such as Netflix. In fact, Netflix only had... Uh, three films debuting during the week of May 23rd through May 27th, 2022. And a lot of people are very excited about Stranger Things Season 4 Volume 1 premiering on Netflix because the the last time that Stranger Things Season 3 premiered was three years ago. And Stranger Things was undoubtedly delayed by the pandemic. And Stranger Things, just to give you an idea of how little TV I watch, I've seen the first season and that's about it. Because there are so many shows that are streaming out there that people tell me I need to catch up on. But I'm a movie guy, first and foremost, not a TV guy. Plus, there are some other uh, movies that I just said no to. For example... On Thursday, May 26th, Netflix came out with My Little Plo- My Little Pony, Make Your Mark. And it is a film, yes, but it is also the pilot episode for the new My Little Pony CGI animated show that is on Netflix now. So I said, eh, probably not, because I tend to, even though... You know, any movie that is 75 minutes or longer, or maybe even some short films are fair game on this show. When a movie is set up to be a pilot for a TV show, I tend to avoid it. Plus, I mean, My Little Pony, not quite my thing anyway. And I know that it's made a huge comeback amongst heterosexual males uh, back about 10 years ago. The, The cartoon has had a strange kind of cult following, but still, I passed on that one. There was also a short film that premiered on Netflix on Wednesday, May 25th. It's still on there. It's called Larva Pendant, and it comes from South Korea. And I passed on that film too, but maybe I'll see it in, a, in another week. But that was amongst the only things that premiered on Netflix. So with that said, I'm just going to give you the biggest movie. I'm not only going to be the biggest moneymaker this Memorial Day weekend because it has... America and Memorial Day, maybe not Memorial Day necessarily, but definitely America and our love for military stories written all over it. The first movie I'm going to be uh, reviewing for you today, I don't know if said premiering, is Top Gun Maverick, a movie that is the sequel to Top Gun that came out 36 years after the original. I don't think anybody actually asked for this movie, but we have it. And surprisingly, I was going into this movie expecting to be disappointed. I was thinking, my God, this is retread. This is Hollywood having no original ideas. And I went into it and I saw it in an IMAX theater and I had a great time. Top Gun Maverick is not a perfect film and I'm still debating whether or not it's better than the original because the original is a very tough act to follow. 
But I do think in some ways Top Gun Maverick is better than the original. And in other ways, there are missed opportunities as well as some movie cliches that maybe did not necessarily need to be in this. So over 30 years after the original Top Gun um, commenced, we are reintroduced to Pete Mitchell, who is best known as, you guessed it, Maverick, and he's played once again by Tom Cruise. And I am especially jealous of Tom Cruise now because he looks damn good for a guy who's in his late 50s. Now, granted, this movie was filmed over various points over the last three years or so, and and largely that was due to the pandemic as well as certain other pushbacks, but Tom Cruise looks unnaturally good, and I'm not sure what his workout regimen is. I'm not sure if Scientology has anything to do with it, but it is astonishing that I am 39 years old and I look older than Tom Cruise. It's astonishing and is absolutely unfair. So I think the movie itself must be at odds with how young Tom Cruise looks because they never say in the movie or never specify how many years it's been since the original Top Gun has happened. They don't give you a subtitle or anything. But... Presumably, over three decades after the event of the first film, Pete Mitchell, Maverick, is still a captain in the Navy, and he still has the need. The need, you also guessed it, for speed. And he is serving as a U.S. Navy test pilot and has avoided promotion, get this, just because he loves flying so much. That's commendable, but again, I'm not sure how realistic that is, but, you know, <laughs> buy into the movie if if you must, because, yeah, Tom Cruise just never ages and apparently doesn't lose his need for speed as well. And apparently, uh, Tom Cruise, outside of the Maverick character, really loves to fly those U.S. Navy jet planes because there's a video that's gone viral now where he's on the late, late show with James Corden and he takes James Corden with him for a ride on one of these planes. And they do all the stunts that you see him do in this movie and the last Top Gun movie. And James Corden acts probably the same way that I would if I was in a plane going upside down and going insane speeds. So anyway, When we're first introduced or reintroduced to Maverick in this film, he is in a high hypersonic uh, speed plane called Dark Star. And this was supposed to be something that um, was uh, shut down by the Navy. But because Tom Cruise, he gets into Dark Star and takes it uh, a certain speed to which a jet had never been taken before. And he takes it so fast in the air, he he goes even further after breaking the record so much that the jet explodes. And because Tom Cruise, he survives. I'm going to say because Tom Cruise so much. But anyway, because uh, Maverick destroyed this jet, there is a, uh, there's a lieutenant in the Navy 
who is played by Ed Harris. He's Rear Admiral Chester Hammer Kane, who is Maverick's superior and head of the Dark Star program. And Ed Harris, as great an actor as he is, is only in this movie for five minutes. And I feel like Ed Harris's character could have been played by anyone. And so with Ed Harris in such a small role, I I just, I, I felt like Ed Harris deserved better. But regardless, Rear Admiral Chester Hammer Kane doesn't so much demote Maverick, and he could actually have him court-martialed, and he says so. But instead, he transfers Maverick to the Naval Naval Air Shipyard North Island, um, which is not actually his idea. The commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet is a former adversary of Maverick. You know him as Iceman, but his full name is Tom Kazansky. He was played by Val Kilmer in the original Top Gun movie, and Val Kilmer is one of the few people to reprise their roles from the original film into this one. So, Maverick is ordered to train an elite group of FA-18EF Super Hornet pilots assembled by Vice Admiral Bo Cyclone Simpson. And there are a lot of names here. Bo Cyclone Simpson is played by John Hamm, and he's a Vice Admiral and the commander of the Naval Air Forces. And John Hamm's character, very much like Ed Harris's character, seems to be there just to tell Maverick, you are moving way too fast, you are way too much of a Maverick, and you need to teach these fighter pilots a thing or two. But teaching is not good enough for Maverick. He feels the need for speed, and he also... I I think he's the exception to the rule that those who can do and those who can't teach. Maverick seems to want to do both. Why? Well, because he is a Maverick. But there is some consternation within his group of cadets who are training under him, um, largely because of one particular cadet who is Lieutenant Bradley Bradshaw, whose nickname is Rooster, and he's played by Miles Teller. Miles Teller was not in the original Top Gun. He may not have even been born when... He actually was not born when Top Gun came out, but in this movie, Miles Teller is the only son of Goose, who in the original Top Gun movie was played by Anthony Edwards. And I'm very, very reluctant to say what became of Goose because Goose meets his fate in the original Top Gun movie. Now, you can interpret meet your fate whatever way you want, but regardless, Miles Teller grew up without a daddy, but he wants to follow in his father's footsteps as a Naval Armed Forces pilot. And these cadets are being trained for a special mission where they are supposed to fly fast and also drop their bombs into enemy territory. We're not told who the enemy is. We're not told what country they're from. All we're told is they have nuclear arms and they can shoot down a pilot at a moment's notice once they detect that pilot's presence. And I got to tell you, 
The parts that involve flying are undoubtedly the best parts of this movie. And because this film was shot in IMAX, it is great to see this movie on the big screen. And I am eternally thankful that they waited to put this film in theaters because I think this is going to get a lot more Tukas's in seats, uh, especially on Memorial Day weekend. So I think that one of the biggest improvements over Top Gun or the original Top Gun in Top Gun Maverick is the way these flight sequences are filmed. And just about any time Tom Cruise or Miles Teller or anybody else in this film jumps into a plane, it's great. Yeah, I I absolutely loved it. I think some of the drawbacks of the film are some of the storytelling cliches. For example, um, Maverick does have a love interest. Her name is Penelope Benjamin. She is a bartender who we're told is a previous love interest of Maverick's. And she's played in this movie by Jennifer Connelly. Now, Jennifer Connelly is 51 years old as of this show. She still looks amazing. And there's been a little bit of controversy, actually, because Kelly McGillis played Tom Cruise's love interest in the original Top Gun. But she was not asked to reprise her role in this film. And frankly, I think that was a missed opportunity because a lot can happen between two people in 36 years, of course. But it it actually made me kind of sad to hear Kelly McGillis in an interview say that, A, she wasn't um, called to be in this movie, and B, she presumed, not me, not, not anybody else, She presumed it's because, in her words, she's old and fat. And if you've seen recent pictures of her, just do a Google search of her. She is aged naturally. Not like Jane Fonda or Raquel Welch or Catherine Deneuve or any of those other, uh, or even Tom Cruise for that uh, matter. But I do feel like there should have been a role for her in this film. If they could have a role for Val Kilmer, who has lost his voice because of a cancer treatment, I I feel like regardless of how Kelly McGillis looks, there could have been a part for her in this film. I also think there was a missed opportunity for Meg Ryan uh, to reprise her role from Top Gun. She was in Top Gun before she became a household name and was well-known for romantic comedies and whatnot, but I do feel like if... Meg Ryan is still alive and presumably her character is still alive. I think that there could have been at least one scene between her and Miles Teller playing her son for them to come to grips together with the fate. Again, I'm trying not to spoil. It's very hard not to do that of the character of goose, Anthony Edwards character, but Again, those are my main grievances. I didn't find the love story between Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly very interesting. If anything, I found it kind of predictable. And if Kelly McGillis isn't going to be in the movie, I don't really necessarily want or need to know about Tom Cruise's character's uh, romantic life. If anything, I probably want to know a little bit more about Miles Teller's character's personal life. And you don't really get very much of that other than him being at the bar and very much like his 
on-screen father in the original, he sits down at a piano and plays Great Balls of Fire, similar to how Anthony Edwards did in that movie. And I, I, I did think that a lot of the characters in the film, not just the, um, the, the ones we remember from the original film, but also a lot of the FA-18F pilots, the cadets who are pulling off this secret mission, I actually thought they were played by their characters really well. There's Glenn Powell who played a guy who you're, you're thinking kind of like Iceman in the original. He's an adversary of Rooster, but he comes through somewhat towards the end. And you also have some other interesting characters. Like all of them have nicknames or code names like Rooster, Phoenix, Warlock, but then there's another kid who's a who's a good pilot, a great pilot. His name is Robert Floyd, but his code name is Bob. And I just thought that was hilarious. I mean, he seems like a meek guy because he wears glasses, but he's a capable pilot and he does things in a plane that I would never ever want to do or even be a, a passenger or a wingman in a plane that somebody else is doing all these acrobatics. You really have to love flying these kinds of planes and doing all these things and not just for the protection of the United States of America. Apparently, Tom Cruise really loves to do these things and all the power to him. It may be the reason that one of the reasons he looks so young, but regardless, I do think this is a movie that is worth seeing on the big screen and with in IMAX, it looks incredible. But when it eventually comes to streaming and Blu-ray 4K, I'm not sure if, from a storytelling perspective, it is going to have the same kind of effect. But it is a very fun movie. I think in some ways it lives up to the original. I think in other ways it feels very chauvinistic. But I do give it my rating of a high checkout because... It really was not a retread of the original Top Gun movie like I thought it would be. And I also loved what it did with some of the characters from the original, especially the one scene that Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer share together. I think especially given how Tom Cruise has aged barely at all over the last 30 or 40 years, and Val Kilmer has shown a lot um, more troublesome kind of aging through no fault of his own, by the way. But I thought the scene they shared together was great. And the fate of Iceman in this movie, I think, sealed a chapter that we didn't think as moviegoers could have been sealed. But I was impressed uh, by Top Gun Maverick more than I was disappointed. I absolutely recommend seeing it on the big screen if you can and especially in IMAX. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is the Bob's Burgers movie. And this is a movie that I was actually looking more forward to watching than Top Gun Maverick, if you can believe it. Again, when I went into Top Gun Maverick, I was expecting to be disappointed, and I was pleasantly surprised by probably about 80 to 85% of it. But with the Bob's Burgers movie, I am a fan of the show, very much like The Simpsons and South Park. I've watched, well, actually, The Simpsons and South Park, I've been watching from the beginning, and I've caught up on most of the episodes over the first 10 years. South Park continues to age really well. The Simpsons is something that I wish would kind of die. Bob's Burgers is one of those shows that is subversive the same way that South Park is, but unlike South Park, Bob's Burgers relies more on characters than on current events. And it's about a struggling family whose patriarch is Bob, who's voiced by H. John Benjamin in the TV show as well as the movie. And the family is the Belchers, and they are trying to save their restaurant, which is called Bob's Burgers, from closing as a sinkhole forms in front of it. And while they're doing that, the children of the family who consist of a very introverted, awkward uh, eighth grader named Tina, who's voiced by a man, uh, Dan Minst, as well as her precocious younger brother, Gene, voiced by Eugene Merman, and the youngest daughter, Louise, who's voiced by Christian Kristen Shaw from Flight of the Concords are trying to solve a mystery that could save their family's restaurant. So the adults, Bob, again voiced by H. John Benjamin, and his devoted wife, Linda, but very high-strung to a fault, who's voiced by John Roberts. Again, there's um, a man doing a woman's voice, but I have to say, he does the woman's voice so well. And Linda Belcher is probably my favorite of the... Uh, Belcher family in terms of characters. They're trying to save their uh, burger restaurant from going under. And Louise, Jean, and Tina are trying to solve a particular mystery. And the mystery I, I thought was pretty good, but I felt like it, it made the movie feel a bit like another episode of Bob's Burgers as opposed to something that would be worth seeing on the big screen. But as far as animated adult shows that are still on the air that have movies based on the show, which involve the participation of the various voice actors and writers and creators of the show that have come out, Bob's Burgers probably falls in between South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, and The Simpsons Movie. South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut is one of those films that even though it was made 23 years ago, it has somehow, even though obviously times have changed and South Park has changed, there it's still very funny. It's balls-to-the-wall um, hilarious. And it's also... Uh, it, it somehow maintains its timeliness. And I think that South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut struck when the iron was hot. Only three episodes, uh, three seasons of South Park had been 
released at that point before the movie came out. But the Simpsons movie waited 18 years after the premiere of the show to come out with their movie. And the movie didn't really feel quite as fresh as a result. The Bob's Burgers movie is coming out 11 seasons after Bob's Burgers made its premiere on Fox in 2011. And I think it's a very good time for the movie to come out. Now, of these adult animated shows, Family Guy is one of the only ones that has not seen a movie release. And frankly, considering how old the show has gotten, how it's cutaway gags, it's non sequitur jokes have kind of worn thin, and how the characters themselves have gotten old, I doubt that a Family Guy movie is going to be particularly funny. But if it comes out, I will see it. But... I think Bob's Burgers has at least that kind of freshness to it in terms of its development of its characters, but I just don't think the the murder mystery that comes up in this film is particularly worth seeing on the big screen necessarily, but you can tell that the creators of Bob's Burgers do give it their all in terms of both the story and also some of the songs that they included here. Like for instance, there is a song that Bob and Linda sing as well as some other people who uh, are frequent customers at Bob's burgers. And it's about of all things, trying to go to the bank and request an extension on their loan payment. And I think this is something that a lot of people, particularly those who are entrepreneurs who are who own their own business and reach a bit of a speed bump can relate certainly and the way the song ends is also very funny when they get to the bank i'm not going to exactly say what happens but it just seems like the belcher family are a quirky family yes but also one for whom you can root because they are <laughs> trying to run this business in a very profitable section of town. They're trying to do the right thing, but they, what's comical about them is the way they try to (laughs) try to keep their business afloat. And also how the children have a very overactive imagination, whether they're more extroverted, like the youngest daughter, Louise, or very, very introverted, to a fault, like the character of Tina. And on top of that, there are some parts in this movie that are gut-bustingly hilarious. Like, for example, Bob and Linda are trying to raise the capital for their loan as fast as they can, and they set up a, a cart to make burgers when at a particular pop, a popular festival in their coastal town, And they're trying to drum up business while also trying to evade some of the people who know that they don't have a license to operate a burger cart. And Linda, the wife, puts on this burger outfit that belongs to their middle child, Jean, but she puts a bikini on it. And the way she acts is not funny when I talk about it, but it is very funny to see on the big screen itself. So I, I do think that the, the murder mystery that happens here, uh, that the kids try to solve is a bit 
contrived and also not big enough for the big screen, I don't think. But I was charmed by this film, and I loved it probably about as much as I love watching the show the few times that I actually do get to watch. And I do think also that the animators of Bob's Burgers kind of stepped it up for the movie. They, they added a lot more CGI that flowed naturally with the, with the traditional two, uh, 2d animation. And I think it worked well here. So Bob's burgers, the Bob's burgers movie is not a perfect, um, animated film, particularly compared to South park, bigger, longer and uncut, which again, there is no perfect film, but I think South park, bigger and longer and uncut is the, animated movie based on an adult animated show to beat. And while Bob's Burgers didn't exactly beat it, you could definitely tell that the creators were true to their characters, true to the animation. And for that reason, I give the Bob's Burgers movie a marginal knockout. Again, I think they could have gotten some something thematically bigger than a typical murder mystery. And also some of the timing of the dialogue of the film, uh, doesn't quite work in on the big screen as it does on the show where they only have 23 minutes to cram as much, as many jokes as they can. And it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic with Bob's burgers because it seems like when one character stops talking, another one starts talking almost as if on cue. That works on TV when you only have so much time, but in a movie, they could have actually embraced some of these awkward pauses. And I do think if they had trusted that instinct, it would have been maybe a bit more of a funnier film. But again, I I still enjoyed the Bob's Burgers movie for what it was. And who knows? I might actually warm up to some of those quirky parts that I didn't think worked on the big screen the, the first time I saw it, but I enjoyed it for what it was. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Emergency. This is the second feature film from director Carrie Williams, who has directed several shorts and TV shows before Emergency. And actually, Emergency is based on a short that he filmed in 2018. Before this, he filmed a feature film that was called R hashtag J, which is a modern day adaptation of Shakespeare's romantic tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. And that came out last year. And there are no actors whom I know from uh, who were in R hashtag J, but emergency is a very original film that doesn't initially sound like an original film, or at least for the first 30 minutes, you're, you're not exactly sure if this is going to be a film. They might as well have put national lampoons in front of, even if the people from national lampoons back in the seventies and eighties had nothing to do with this film. (laughs) 
They, they put the National Lampoon mon- uh, moniker on some terrible directive uh, DVD films. And yeah, I mainly just ignore some of those, especially when one of them, which was called Pledge This, starred Paris Hilton. So this movie does take place at a prestigious college, w- which does not have a name, but you can tell it's definitely, if, if it's not one of those Ivy League schools, it's a, it's a, it's a collegiate institution that's like an Ivy League school. Like, for example, William and Mary, Georgetown, Vanderbilt, Stanford. These are legendary schools that were founded either around the same time as the Ivy League colleges or they have the same kind of academic reputation. And we're introduced to two characters, both of whom are students and both of whom are black. There is the ambitious Kunle, who is a PhD candidate or a soon-to-be PhD candidate, who's played by Donald Elise Watkins, and his less-than-ambitious friend, Sean, who is also a fellow senior, and he's played by R.J. Seiler. I've seen both of these actors in other films and TV shows before, and they're definitely not household names, at least not yet, but they have very good chemistry together and maybe they grew up together. Maybe they didn't, but you would never know. Um, you would assume that they grew, grew up together based on their interactions as friends. They have amazing chemistry together. And when we're first introduced to them, they are walking to a class and they sit in on this class, uh, for which they are, (laughs) they've been attending for their, second semester senior year and the teacher or the professor walks in and she is a white British woman and she initially puts on her board uh, to get the attention of the class, her subject of the day, which happens to be the word nigger. And in a safe academic environment, She talks about the power of the word nigger. And at first you're thinking this might be one of those college films based on the African-American experience that may be like School Days, directed by Spike Lee. It might be like Dear White People, directed by Justin Simeon. And it it starts out like that, but it, it eventually evolves into another type of film when you discover that Sean... Uh, R.J. Seiler's character is getting prepared for uh, uh, basically a party run with Kunle. And Kunle is trying to wrap up his studies to solidify his, um, his entry into Columbia Graduate School for him to earn his Ph.D., and his friend Sean is getting him to go to one of these parties. So initially you're thinking this is either the socially conscious black college movie going into maybe more of an animal house like movie with some hints of the hangover. But then when they get back to their house, which they're renting for their senior year, they find a white woman who is unconscious on the floor and they don't know at first whether she's drunk or she's dead. And their third roommate, the introverted, video game-loving, pot-smoking Carlos, who's played by Sebastian Chacon, does not know 
that she's even in the house, let alone that she passed out in their living room. And the three of them are panicking because there are two black students and one brown student who have a white girl in their apartment who might be dead and it's not looking good for them. So the natural thing to do, which Kunle actually comes up with, is to call 911, get an ambulance there, and get her the help that she needs. But Sean is also understandably reluctant to do that because when a white girl is passed out in a in a house that's rented by two black guys and one brown guy, the police are going to be really, really suspicious. And that's not going to end well. That may not end well for the three of them, even if they are unarmed. And and I think the the way they try to cover up something that is not their fault is realistic, especially given the Black Lives Matter um, events that have happened over the last couple of years and the demonstrations and the move to defund the police. That invites potentially controversy that the three of them cannot afford to invite, but especially not Kunle, who has a bright future ahead of him. And also there is the possibility that Princeton could revoke their acceptance from him if he gets in trouble with the law. So the three of them carry this woman out. They don't know who she is. They don't know how she got to where she is. And they try to get her the help that she needs without attracting unwanted attention, either from the police or from unscrupulous white neighbors, which they inevitably do. And there are a few contrivances. For one thing, they do get the unwanted attention of some frat boys who throw some things at their minivan and end up busting one of the taillights, which is one of those things that will alert the police. I thought that was probably the most contrived part of this movie. And there was also a, a, a plot revelation where you realize that Emma is underage and she has an older sister, Maddie, who's played by Sabrina Carpenter, who is very young, but is already a veteran of movies and TV shows. And she is trying to find her younger sister. She doesn't know where she is. And uh, she is, of course, under the influence of at least alcohol. So she tries to recruit her two friends to go get them. One of the contrivances is that they try to find her sister with a tracking device on her cell phone, which is not um, uncommon, but they try to find her on a bike and a hoverboard, which is not the fastest or most efficient way to go. If you really want to track this person down, why not? Why didn't they, um, two white women and one uh, Latino man who could pass as a white person, why didn't they call the police? Why didn't they uh, <laughs> get you know, get a cruiser to, to come find them. And, and they do eventually call the police, but it seems a little too late, but then again, they are under the influence and they're not thinking in their right mind. 
And this movie does seem particularly uneven in some respects, but it feels uneven in a very realistic way. And it feels, and you feel definitely for the three college students who are making their way to graduation and they are trying to cover up tracks of something that they did not do and it's not their fault. And they're also trying to evade any misinformation or uh, perceived intentions by people who might presume they're up to no good. And I thought that was the driving force of what made this movie great and certainly worth watching. And there were definitely some funny parts, but when the dramatic parts kicks in and when the three friends, Sean Coonley and Carlos begin to have some consternation in between the, the three of them, as they're trying to get this young woman who they don't know to safety, it felt realistic. And also the way the movie resolved itself and the way it ended, I thought was an appropriate ending. It certainly wasn't the ending that I expected it to be, but you're rooting for these guys. You want this girl to be safe and also to get her the proper medical attention that she may necessarily need. And you're rooting for these guys all along. And you also feel the tension about their potential to be caught. And I think the movie really gets to that and also gets to some soul searching for the three characters that feels genuine. There are a few plot contrivances here and there, but I think probably about 95% of the movie felt real, which is why Emergency gets my rating of a knockout. It's an original film written by K.D. Davila, who wrote the story and the screenplay. And K.D. Davila is actually Mexican-American, which may actually explain um, why there are the Latin, uh, excuse me, the Latinx characters uh, in this film uh, as they are. But she also wrote the original short, which uh, upon which this movie was based. But I thought that Carrie Williams, who is an African-American director, did an amazing job directing this film as well. He took a solid story and added a lot of heart to it, which I have not seen in a film about college students, particularly those on a party weekend for quite some time. So Emergency is available on Prime Video. If you have Prime Video, I highly recommend you see this film. If it's out in the theater near you by chance, I also recommend it.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is What's Coming Up Next? This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of May 30th through June 3rd, 2022. And there are not very many movies that are being released in theaters this coming weekend of June 3rd. And I think that's largely because Top Gun Maverick came out this past weekend and a big, big movie is coming out next weekend, June 10th. And that movie is Jurassic World Dominion. Reportedly, this is going to be the last of the Jurassic Park slash world movies, but I don't know if that's true, but I'm going to discuss that movie next week. But the big movie that is subject to be released in theaters this coming weekend is a movie that's called Watcher. And it's a movie about a woman whose name is Julia, who is a young actress who just moved to town with her boyfriend. And as a serial killer stalks the city in which she moves, she notices a mysterious stranger watching her from across the street. The movie stars Maika Monroe, Carl Glusman, Bern Gorman, and Tudor Petrut. Now, Maika Monroe is an actress whose name I've heard previously. She was born in 1993, so she is uh, about 30, but she is uh, a, a young-ish actress, I would say. Uh, probably her biggest profile movie to date has been It Follows, where she played the lead in that film. And It Follows was an excellent horror film. Definitely one of the best to come out in the last decade or so. So, Micah Monroe is no stranger to maybe horror or suspense films like this one is. And if Watcher is coming out in a theater near me, and no guarantee that it will be, but I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The only other film that is listed as being on um, or coming out in theaters is a movie that's called Prith, Prith. Let me try to say that. It is an Indian name and it is Prith Viraj. Prith Viraj. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Forgive me, all you uh, people out there who speak Indian who um, I, I mispronounced that name. But anyway. It's a movie about a fearless warrior, an epic and an epic. Damn it! I can't even read these English words right. It's a fearless leader, a fearless warrior, an epic love story, and the tagline says, "Witness the grand saga of Samrat Prithviraj Chauhan." I stuttered a little bit there, but it's a movie that's directed by. Chandra Prakash Dwavedi, and it stars Akshay Kumar, Manushi Chihilar, Sanjay Dut, and Sonu Sood. So as you can probably gather, this is probably not an American film. It's definitely an Indian film, and it also might be Bollywood, but I don't know for sure, because not all films that come out of India are necessarily Bollywood. Bollywood are just the best known films, but I presume that this film is a Bollywood film, but it may not necessarily be. But Prith V. 
Virage is a film that is coming out in certain theaters because it's definitely not coming out worldwide. It's unlikely that I'll see this film, but I'll let you know what I think if I see it. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've run down the few movies that are subject to be released in theaters for June 3rd, 2022, it's now time for me to get into the movies that are subject to being released on streaming for the week of May 30th through June 3rd, 2022. And I'm going to start with Netflix. And there are a few Netflix originals, just a few, that will be premiering on the platform on June 3rd. One of them is a Netflix documentary that is called Mr. Good, Cop or Crook. And in this riveting docuseries, of which there are four episodes, when Norway's top cop is suspected of drug trafficking, investigators must act, is he a good officer or a major criminal? Well, considering that he is suspected of drug trafficking, it's obviously leaning one way more than the other, but this sounds like an intriguing docuseries. It doesn't sound like your typical Netflix serial killer documentary. This may be a series that I see, but given that it's four episodes, it may not necessarily be likely, but if I see it in its entirety, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another Netflix film that is subject to be being released on the platform on June 3rd is a movie that is called Interceptor. And this sounds like an action film. Let me see um, what I can find about it. Interceptor is a new film, uh, obviously implied by the fact that it is a Netflix original that is premiering on the platform. It is indeed an action film that is female-led. And the actress who is in the film is a lesser-known actress by the name of Elsa Pataki. But this is a a heroine role that I bet Angelina Jolie may have jumped at the chance of acting in. But uh, Elsa Pataki is actually a, a Spanish actress in that she is from Spain. And she is plays an army captain who must use her years of tactical training and military expertise when a simultaneous coordinated attack threatens the remote missile interceptor station of which she is in command. So she stars in the movie along with Luke Bracey, who is an American actor. And I I don't know if this is an American film. Oh, I'm sorry. Luke Bracey is an Australian actor. Uh, My apologies for that, but he's been in several American movies. He's been in the remake of Point Break, which I didn't see. He was in G.I. Joe Retaliation, which came out way back in 2013. I also didn't see that. He was in The November Man with Pierce Brosnan, which I did see, but I didn't uh, remember particularly well. But Interceptor looks like a killer film. I don't know if it's necessarily good or not, but this is a film I probably will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And that just about does it for movies that are coming out on Netflix. Now on to Disney+. Plus. 
There is one film that is premiering on Disney Plus, and the movie is called Hollywood Star Girl. And I can only imagine that this is a family film because that is Disney's forte, their bread and butter. But it's a movie that stars, actually, uh, it's, it's a PG rated film, so it is a, a family film, presumably. And it stars Judy Greer, Uma Thurman, and Al Madrigal. And I think that Al Madrigal, oh, and it also stars Grace Vanderwald, who is a veteran of America's Got Talent. She's probably the titular star girl in this movie. And yeah, Grace Vanderwall has made somewhat of a, a name for herself starring in these Disney films. And it's really no wonder because she's uh, about as uh, perky and as talented as Taylor Swift. And she's also not as old as Taylor Swift. So in Hollywood's eyes, she is still a young girl, at least for now. And Taylor Swift is 32 years old, but she's old as far as Hollywood goes, but she's not stopping making music and she's not stopping making music that people are interested in hearing. So yeah, that's goes right against Hollywood's, um, obsession with youth. And I think that's a great thing. So will Grace Vanderwald have the same kind of fate? I don't exactly know, but she stars as a girl by the name of star girl Caraway. Yes. Her name, her first name is Stargirl. I don't know if that's her real name or her stage name, but nothing really surprises me when it comes to Generation Z. So anyway, Stargirl Caraway uh, journeys out of Mica, M-I-C-A, which I guess is her small town, into a bigger world of music, dreams, and possibility. So it sounds like Hollywood Stargirl is one of these typical small town girl goes into the big city, presumably L.A., Hollywood and tries to make it big as a singer. That's what I presume that it is. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that it's predictable, but I'll see it and let you know what I think on next week's show. And there is a 2022 movie that is premiering on Hulu, but my, my research says that it is not necessarily a Hulu original, but it is a 2022 film. So it is presumably brand new and it is called Fire Island. And it's it's about a pair of best friends who set out to have a legendary week-long summer vacation with the help of Cheap Rosé and a group of eclectic friends. So this sounds kind of like a frat boy movie. It stars uh, Joel Kim Booster and Bowen Yang. Bowen Yang is um, a uh, Saturday Night Live uh, cast member right now. He is a uh, featured player and I'm sorry, uh, not a featured player. He's a regular cast member. The The featured one is the one who's most likely to be fired. And Bowen Yang has certainly made a name for himself already in SNL, especially since he's the first Asian American cast member of the show ever. And he also happens to be gay and he's one of the few gay cast members uh, openly gay uh, cast members ever in SNL's history. And the movie also co-stars Margaret Cho. She's obviously not one of the party goers, or at least not one of the Gen Z party goers, but this sounds like um, an interesting film and it is a Hulu original. So I might see it, especially since I think Bowen Yang is funny. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. 
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.